Welcome, Bill. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Bill Thompson, come to talk to Counterpoint. Thank you very much indeed. And I'm Nick Waddle-Smith, and Harry Magnuson is with us as well. So, Bill, about three years ago, uh, you chaired uh, a big debate for us on Creative Commons called Unbound Freedom, Unbounded Freedom. And in those three years, has a lot happened in terms of Creative Commons and those kind of issues, which were very hotly debated at the time? Um, yes, but, and uh, I, I have a horrible fear you're going to be hearing yes, but a lot from me. Um, the ideas uh, that are embedded in Creative Commons has, have, I think, become just commonplace. And to some extent, there, there's less awareness here of it because it's just something that people now do, or large numbers of people who publish online now do. And it is not seen as being remarkable. So, so on the one side, we have that. We have, so we have in, initiatives like, um, if you're looking for images to use in a presentation now, Google, Yahoo will allow you to search for Creative Commons tagged, in, tagged images. Flickr will let you do the same sort of thing. There's a great deal of music now available. There's obviously lots of writing and other material. Um, organisations, institutions like Open Democracy, for example, are releasing their material under Creative Commons attribution licences. And, and the thinking that behind Creative Commons has definitely been effective in terms of it has infected um, thinking about intellectual property issues among those people who care about freedom and openness and sharing. And it's among those people, but sadly they are a minority. Uh, because at the same time, we've seen a significant hardening of the line for those people who believe that they can make money out of rigidly controlling intellectual property or copyrights, and the politicians who see their interests as being paramount. Um, so we've seen in the UK with the new digital economy bill, you know, proposals to significantly strengthen copyright law, not in a way that will then make sharing of creativity more likely, but in a way that will sustain and support these old business models based on the assumption that you lock things up as rigidly as you can, you don't give it away, you don't let people use it. So I think although a lot of has happened with Creative Commons, and I think the movement, I think I would count it a success, there's a key area, they tend to be the people with the money and the power, sadly, who don't listen to it, who don't really take it seriously, and who see stronger protection as being their way of holding back the digital tide. Now, they will fail, they will be swept away, they will be just a distant memory in 10 years' time. Because they're both arguing for the long term, aren't they? They, they, they are both would say that they're doing things which are the best in the long term. Well, who's, who's best and who's long term? That the key issue about intellectual property is it's neither intellectual nor property, in, in the sense that, that Copyright is granted to certain forms of creative output, and it is granted under the, the um, British system and the American system to promote economic value, to encourage the, the creation of more stuff, which can then be sold or traded to fuel the economy, or under the European system, you, you get protected because you have your moral rights as, as an author and a creator. And the history of copyright has, until recently, well, has, is always about the balance between the interest of the wider society in having access to creative material and the interest of the creator and how you encourage creativity, how you do all those things. The model based around intellectual property tries to attach property rights to this creative output and I have always argued, I argued three years ago and continue to argue, is wrong. It's not the way to do it because it distorts your thinking and allows you to see ideas and expressions as if they can be owned and then you get 
the situation where you see musicians complaining because a studio session they took place in 50 years ago is suddenly available in the public domain because it's come out of copyright, and they call that theft. You know, it's no better than going there and stealing my chair from my house, when of course it isn't, and any reasonable person would know that it isn't. So we have this, in a sense, incoherent debate going on. Now, Creative Commons was founded, now you less echo, in a sense, to cut through that, say, okay, if we're going to have strong copyright law, let's find a simple way to give up the rights that we would be given under the law, or rather at least to make it clear which ones we want to assert and which ones we don't, so that you can save time and hassle, so that you can make it easier to share. And the, the secondary purpose of that was because if a lot of sharing goes on, people will gradually begin to realise that strong intellectual property law stands in the way of a true, vibrant, thriving creative economy, and therefore it will shift. The balance will be shifted back in favour of the public, and that hasn't happened. So in that sense, Creative Commons has been a complete and utter failure because we've got the ACTA treaty going through, which would significantly strengthen the law. We've got what's being proposed in the UK. We've got all the three strikes laws which are being proposed in France and the UK and elsewhere that would criminalise or certainly significantly penalise people who share unli you know, unlicensed copies of material online. They're all about a hardening up of attitudes towards copyright and IP. And I actually think that's quite regrettable because I think we've missed a great opportunity that was presented five, six years ago in the early days of Creative Commons to start the international debate about the rebalancing of copyright. And that just not has, has not happened in anything like the way that I hope so to. If there's a government and a judicial lead on in terms of uh, against Creative Commons, what what is the situation for cultural organisations like the BBC, like the BFI, uh, to mention but two, but all our, all our museums, uh, and of course the British Council itself. What is the role for them who, on the one hand, hear the, uh, the mainstream of government argument, um, and also the undertow of funding, um, and on the other hand, have a mission which is broadly expressed as cultural relations? I think it, it's, it's tricky. There are two separate aspects to it. The first is the fact that you may have resources, material, that you, know, you hold in trust to have access to. We have an archive, 75 years of the British Council archive, it's all available. But of course, rights in much of that material don't belong to you in any useful sense. And so the, the current hardening of attitudes towards copyright in the digital age is making it more difficult to do many things which you believe would create public value, which you believe would be consonant with your broader mission, which would not in any sense damage what you're doing, but would strengthen it. Being able to go through and digitise material and put it out there and make it available, not just for people to, to experience, but perhaps to reuse, to embed, you know, to do it you know, in a way that is consonant with the, you know, the underlying mission of the British Council, fine. So not just saying, here it all is, go do what you want with it, but to make it available. And that becomes very hard because at the moment, everyone's talking about piracy and everyone's become very assertive of their rights. And people now seem to see, feel there is value in the stuff they did many years ago that might possibly be exploited. In fact, an interesting test case for this is what's happening in the publishing industry with ebooks and digital rights. So if I can just deviate slightly from your question, but I will come back to it. The publishers, particularly the small independent publishers, uh, people like Faber and Canongate and Quercus, are, are very keen to do things digitally, to, to 
put out e-books, to you know, sell them, to, to go beyond the printed book, not, not to replace the printed book, but to, you know, and to have complementary um, versions of a text that are available to be read electronically. Some authors are keen as well, but I happen to know that many agents are very, very cautious and are advising authors not to do anything because they are fearful that they will sign a deal that seems to be on good terms now and some technological breakthrough will happen, something will happen, which was, I know, I suddenly realised they've thrown away millions of pounds. Now, the chances are they haven't, because very few authors make millions of pounds. The chances are that not, and not doing anything makes it less likely that something exciting will happen. So we have this sort of situation, but because people are being persuaded to think about electronic and digital versions as being a new revenue stream, a new way of making money, whatever, they're actually making wrong choices, I believe, wrong choices about what they should be doing. Similarly, people who have, under the law, rights that they can assert in material which you may be curating, I fear are more likely to be aggressive about asserting those rights because they hear from the from the government, from the music and movie, from, every, from the existing rights holders and from legislators that these things are so important. You know, the economy is losing billions of pounds and musicians are being thrown into penury because people are copying their songs. And so this, and I, I think this whole culture is, is regrettable. It's a sort of digital factorism. You know, everybody in it for themselves. You know, it's, and and, and I, I don't think it's very healthy in terms of the creative economy going forward or just in terms of our ability to make use of material that already exists. Yeah, um, there's more choice available um, to access content over the internet um, than ever before, and there's uh, more availability. Yet, um, on services like Spotify, 85% uh, of the music available accounts for 80% of the streaming. And also, um, in terms of the film industry, blockbusters um, are making record profits. So I was wondering whether you think the internet uh, has done anything to democratise cultural industries in terms of the producer and the consumer. Right. Um, absolutely, yes. And uh, just looking at raw numbers like that um, doesn't actually tell you that, that much that's useful because there has always been like, the power law distribution in terms of some, some things make it big and they generate large amounts of money, large amounts of interest and activity. That doesn't mean that the other stuff isn't worth doing, doesn't reach a reasonable audience. And the democratising influence, actually, I don't like the word democratising because it's not about having a vote, it's not about that sort of thing, but, but the the flattening influence of the internet has been that digital distribution is now cheap enough and available enough to a significant proportion of people living in Western developed nations and increasingly to people elsewhere. And so the tools of publication and distribution are now in the hands of the masses where they weren't before. You don't need a printing press, you don't need to post stuff, you can put stuff up and if you can make people aware of it, now you can make them aware of it by getting somebody famous to tweet about it, then you can draw an audience. And I think that has had a massive impact. I think it's important to look, if you look, in a sense, we're all used to seeing the Chris Anderson long tail sort of power, power law curve of, you know, sort of very flat, the hockey stick curve, okay? But of course, that curve expresses a mathematical function, all curves do. And the curves are different in different cultural sectors areas and I think that there are some areas where the integral, the area under the curve of the tail is actually much larger than the area under the curve for the few hits and so in fact the cumulative cultural impact 
of all the stuff that gets a few thousand people reading it and you know, people with blogs and stuff like that, it is probably greater than the few blockbuster hits that make millions of dollars in Hollywood. Now, this is me speculating on the basis of some very dodgy mathematics and an, and an understanding that Chris Anderson said one right thing and many wrong things in his book. So trying to focus on the one right thing he said. Um, but but I, I would argue that, no, I would say that our understanding of how culture is disseminated, about how cultures change and renew themselves, would lead me to have, a, as a reasonable hypothesis, that this is the case, that the cumulative cultural impact of many of the small things that are being done by institutions like British Council, by others, is greater than the, than the cultural impact of the big stuff that gets the headlines. Um, do you see, in light of uh, News International's decision to start charging for online content... They haven't decided to start charging. They've announced that they're going to in the yeah. hope that they can frighten everybody into letting them yeah. do things that will let them get away with it. There's do a you big see difference. this as um, uh, a futile effort? Said costly. <laughs> um, oh, until this morning, yes, but then Google went and betrayed yeah. us all. Uh, again, that uh, seems to be the tradition with Google. Google is such a coward. They're such a cowardly organisation, really, that, that they take a, they have the opportunity to take a principled stand which would benefit the whole world, and instead they decide to do the easy thing that keeps the powerful people off their back and lets them make more money. Um, so they did it with Book Search, where had they pushed through the court case with the um, AACP, um, they would have won under fair dealing under the US law, and then we would all have been able to go away and digitise our own personal libraries and maintain indexes of them, and it would have been accepted that copyright law did not extend to cover that particular use, because copyright law was written in a time before that use was possible, and everything would have been fine. And Google could have done what they wanted, and other people could have done. Instead, Google put forward a settlement that was entirely in Google's own interests, and tried to sell it to the rest of the world as if it was some sort of, you know, they were being nice to us and they weren't. And similarly, with this accepting the premise of Rupert Murdoch's pathetic argument about the way that sort of the web leeches his valuable journalism away. Um, it, so instead of challenging that, they've accepted the premise and said, OK, yeah, we're going we're gonna to limit people's access to certain forms of news. And so in doing so, they have let everyone down, frankly, um, because now it will be almost impossible for other people who are news aggregators to do that. Yeah. First they came for the search engines and I didn't stand up because I wasn't a search engine. Next they'll come for the link aggregators and I won't stand up because I'm not a link aggregator. And after that they'll come for the bloggers and I will be taken down because I am a blogger. So I think it's a very sad day um, and I don't know what they're playing at, frankly. Do you think uh, it's a futile oh, sorry, effort? You seem to touch the floor with nerve there. But do you think it's a lot of charging for online content? Because no, no. Um, yeah, I think you can... Yeah, actually, back to Larry Lessig again. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Ask the question and then I'll answer it. I just wonder whether you thought it was a futile effort because you know people can always go to the BBC or dozens or hundreds or thousands of other news sources on the internet. They don't necessarily have to go to the Times, the Sun. So far they can. Um, but just because the BBC won't charge for content doesn't mean that deals between search engines and internet service providers cannot make it easier and more convenient for people to go to paid sources of content. Let's suppose that the principles of net neutrality are thrown out the window, that um, News International does a deal with Bing to make sure the Times content is well indexed on Bing, 
Um, so yeah, that, that it's all really SEO'd up and available, so less visible in the B2C content. But a micropayment system is introduced so that ISPs allow you to pay as part of your monthly subscription for access to news international stuff. So the BBC just stops being less visible. Whatever the BBC does, it will then just become less popular. News international will make money. So it's back, in fact, Larry Lessig here. Larry Lessig, who invented Creative Commons, um, wrote a book called Code. And he pointed out that code is law. That the software that, run, that, that runs on your computer determines what you can do. And the software that creates the internet, the transmission control protocol, the internet protocol, and the way it all works, that was built by engineers to serve a certain set of purposes, and it can be changed. I could re-engineer the internet for you. you in fact, I could just use existing technologies to make it very hard for people to easily find free news content. And if News International did that, it would be hard at the moment to argue that it would be breaking any laws. So. No, it's not. It's futile given the shape of today's internet, because today's internet is malleable, and technologies can be changed, and what Rupert Murdoch and News International are very good at doing is creating an environment within which they can succeed. You know, if you look at the, the success of Sky, it was not solely because, you know, Sky Television in the UK, not solely because they had sports rights, but because Margaret Thatcher allowed them to be an offshore broadcaster, and therefore they were exempt from certain forms of regulation and could do things other broadcasters couldn't. Well, Google is an offshore, can't help, out of the UK, provider of content. It's not regulated. If Google decided to delist BBC, Google just said, oh, actually, we decided we're not going to index BBC content. Nothing could be done. Private company, their decision. So, no, it is not unimaginable. It would be regrettable, but it's not unimaginable. And that's why we need to take decisions like Google's decision to limit access to, to news content seriously because they mark, they, they indicate something about the sort of thinking that is happening at senior levels and very large and powerful and unaccountable corporations. To, to, think of, to just keep on thinking about newspapers there, many newspapers are in a crisis because they can't really afford to print the things. Mm -hmm. So is there any satisfactory reader of news, newsprint that you could see which could which could excite readers to such an extent that they would happily read newspapers on a device, therefore even by subscription. And I'm holding up my iPhone because this is the, the death of Kindle um, and many other things as well. The well Kindle got an appallingly bad review in the New Yorker. It, both yeah. technically yeah. And, and philosophically, as it were, just dumped script and characters rather than giving you a reading experience. Absolutely. And reading apps on smartphones, not just the iPhone, but the whole range of Google Android phones that are coming out and the Symbian phones that are out there, seem to be something people will pay for. They'll pay for the content on them. They like the accessibility. It, it allows new navigational metaphors, which you don't really have on a laptop. Um, one of the cool things about the iPhone is the, is the way shaking can do things. Yes. So yeah, you can shake, I mean, like with iTunes, you can shake to go to the next track and stuff like that. You can't do that with your laptop easily. Well, you don't, not a good idea. Um, the dedicated <coughs> readers, the e-ink, uh, there is a future in which we're all using plastic logic screens and they're beautiful and flexible and plastic and multicolor and that future is, seems to be constantly receding, sadly. And I think it's a shame because I think they're very cool devices, but I, I think we're not going to get there. And I think the phone is a good enough technology for reading and would allow news providers to get their content into people's hands in a convenient way. Newspapers, I can't miss them, but they're going. 
Uh, that model was not sustainable 10 years ago because of the move of classified advertising online. The business model that allowed you to, to pay for journalism and to throw ink on dead trees and then to ship physical copies around the country, that model stopped being viable some time ago. It's just taken a while for that particular trade to fall off its rails. Um, and yeah, the Guardian's decision to stop printing uh, the technology supplement is just an extraordinary win. But it's clear that newspapers as we know them, yeah, we've passed that point. That may not matter too much in the long term. Yeah, I'll miss them, but that's because I'm of a particular generation. News dissemination can still be done quite effectively through these devices, and we're learning, I say, we're finding navigational metaphors for these devices that may be as good as a page of newsprint that will sustain quick scanning, that will sustain chunking in your view, that will uh, facilitate serendipity. Because one of the important things about newspapers is the stuff you didn't know you wanted to read until you read it. And if all you've got is an RSS feed from your favourite sources, you, you miss out on stuff that's actually quite interesting. Do you see the tablet? Say, favourite mm. Apple tablet. Oh, yes, but well. do you see that as expanding the repertoire of iPhone uh, devices? I think it could. And the real thing there is whether you have a dedicated ebook reader, which is basically a computer with a screen which tries to emulate paper, which is what Kindle and um, Sony readers are. And I think they, they don't work. They do a few things quite well. Uh, the only people I know who use them are people who work for publishing houses who now put all their manuscripts on to read on the train so they don't have to carry around big printed manuscripts. <coughs> they use them a lot. And yeah, technical stuff, manuals, dictionaries, whatever, fine. There's a use, but it's not a major use. It's not pleasure reading. Um, a tablet with a which is a dedicated it's a general purpose computer with an illuminated screen, a screen which shines as opposed to a screen works by reflectivity, has the possibility, I think to do a lot of stuff that we would like and has the possibility to introduce us to new forms of sharing and linking and browsing information that those like me who are constantly trying to explore the new stuff will take to quite quickly but more importantly that younger people as they move up in, move into a world in which newspapers are relatively rare will find quite amenable so I could see that taking off. And that will then be used to sustain new forms of journalism. Because the bigger question about newspapers, and indeed the question about Murdoch and paper content, is, is, is this, which is, what is journalism for? That we have a tradition of 200 years of you know, the evolution of the newspaper and, and radio and television news, whatever, you know, here, here in the UK. Journalism is about correcting imbalances in information flow in society. Right? That's, what, that's what it does. Um, it makes things public where they were previously secret. It, it oils the wheels of a, of a modern society by ensuring that some information is in the public domain where it can be used by anyone. And our current forms of journalism, particularly newspaper journalism, have developed to meet that need, to fill those gaps. In the information society, the gaps are different. The way information flows is different, the access you have to stuff. You know, if a newspaper is the only way you can find out about Parliament, you need a parliamentary reporter. If Hansard is online and Parliament.tv is there and it's automatically subtitled, actually you don't. Not in the same way. And so I think that we need to think about journalism as something which emerges in a society. And we're in the transition from a post-industrial into, into a network society. And the things that journalism is going to be asked to do are different. And the old forms don't work. 
And what we're doing at the moment is living through the period where the old forms fall apart before we know what the new forms are. And it will be five, ten years before we know what the new, new forms are. This is a very good decade to be a corrupt politician because the chances of any deep investigative journalism are reduced because all the old ways of doing it have broken and we have not yet come up with the, the tools, the services, the approaches, the devices to do things in a new way. We will because societies develop the, the things they need to correct the, fail, you know, the, the, the failures of information just as we develop institutions and company structures and regulators to correct failures in the market. We do it imperfectly and it oscillates, but we do do it. That is what a society is. It's a collection of people in which there are these correctives. So the, the, the new form of journalism will come out, and I'm trying very hard to think about what it might be, and you know, with people like Jeff Jarvis, and, and you know, there's, there's definitely a sense of some serious thinking about this, but because it's a discourse, because it's an ongoing sort of interaction between the technology, the network, the tools, the forms, you can't see it yet. And it may well be that there is one technological innovation that lets things crystallise around it. And at that point, it becomes clear, this is how we will do journalism now. And when that happens, people will think of ways to make money out of it. And when they make money, they'll build companies. When they build companies, it will start to become institutionalised. And that will happen again. And we will have you know, e-news international or whatever. But it may not be the same companies that we have now. It may not be the same titles. It may not be the same people doing the same things. Um, on that point slightly, in the next five to ten years, what emerging technologies, digital technologies, do you see having some sort of tangible impact upon society? Not necessarily just in regards to journalism, but... Um, I, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that it will be augmented reality stuff. Um, I don't know if you've seen these, the iPhone Tube Finder app. I've got that, yeah. Okay, right. Now, that's clunky and imperfect, but yeah. it's the first <coughs> it's like consumer-facing augmented reality stuff I've ever seen, and I find it quite exciting. Um, there are people working on um, digital contact lenses, contact lenses with micro-laser arrays in them that actually sort of project an image directly onto your um, retina, and so you can go into a room and look at everyone, and you'll see their names appear in bubbles and stuff like that, and... Yeah, but, but yeah, you can do it at the moment with, with glasses <clears throat> and you know, phones with a camera that you hold up onto a scene. Yeah, imagine, okay, here's a, a time-saving application that you can go out and build, which is you have a photocopier, okay, photocopiers always break, right? So you privately phone to the photocopier, it takes an image of it, it knows what photocopier is because you recognise it, and it shows you where all the paths are, and the place you've got to press to open it appears in red on your phone, so you just hold it and go press, right? Those, that's going to transform the world. You think... Uh, I fixed for yeah. copies. No, because, because we use it for lots of different things. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you, do you know how many times we go into a, uh, into a meeting and yeah, there's 10 people there. Yeah, I always sit down and write people's names down, but I still forget who they are. Wouldn't it be really useful to go to a meeting and just did that? Yeah, and it told you who that person was and where they worked for. And yeah, you could have a little scrolly bit which shows them the wild contributions they made. Or maybe, you know, it's... It, yeah. The other one I always would like is if, if I'm giving a talk at a conference, be able to look out and see people who are falling asleep. You can pick on them, you know, those sort of things. Go to a, into a party, see all the people who are single. Those sort of things. So I think the widespread availability of network access, computers in our pockets, cameras, and visual processing that can be offloaded to the cloud, augmented reality, put your money into that. Some of those technologies you just mentioned, 
remind me of what my grandfather said to me a few weeks ago saying um, that there was a danger that if we rely on all these technologies that we're going to lose all these important social skills and uh, if we know someone's name before even um, being introduced to them um, what's this it's kind of scary to think what kind of impact it it's might have on society. how much better it will be <laughs> <coughs> so let me tell you the Thomas Beecham story to show you how much better it will be Thomas Beecham conductor backstage after a concert he conducted uh, an elderly woman came up to talk to him this was in 1930 he recognised her vaguely and she's, he said, you know, she said how much she's enjoyed the concert and, uh, and then she asked me, he asked if she'd seen him before but he said well he recognised her she said yes many times and he said uh, and are you well is he well he said and, and your husband he's well yes he's well and he's still still yes, still king she said <laughs> okay. that sort of social embarrassment just disappeared we'll have more and more interesting forms of social interaction and uh, yeah and no, I, I, I'm not that worried I think we are reliant on technology but we're reliant on technology already we're sitting here in an air-conditioned room in a modern building that is entirely dependent on the grid yeah, if electricity went off you know, this building would be useless to anything not even feral beasts would want to stay here they can get through the airlock um, so no I think yeah, an increasing reliance on modern technology I think is, is it's part of an expression of optimism about the survival of civilization. frankly and whilst I'm happy to chat to the survivalists you know yeah. saying, you know yeah, yeah, fine, we'll have some water and some cans of beans. I generally work in my day-to-day -day life on the assumption that we won't completely screw up the planet and make it uninhabitable by human beings, that we won't wipe ourselves out with some sort of global pestilence or war, and that we will continue to have advanced industrial manufacturing capability that delivers cool, shiny toys into my house. Um, given that you have all this optimism, uh I don't think it's not optimism, it's a no. working assumption. Do you know about yeah. the Higgs field? Do you know the entire universe could disappear in yeah. a millionth of a second? Yeah. But that's not optimism, no. that's just hope. No. Okay, well, given these assumptions, um, do you see uh, a date in the near future where we'll witness universal uh, internet access across the globe? Uh, um, yeah, probably about two or three years, but it'll be mostly be through mobile phones. Because there are about four billion of them at the, mo at the moment, um, so no, I think, I think sort of access to the network. Let's not call it internet access. Access to the network and information services is very quickly becoming ubiquitous because the cost of commodity hardware is plummeting, because the ease of putting up base stations is increasing, because governments everywhere are realising that not to be on the network is to be excluded from the international community. Um, it won't look like shiny Mac laptops in every village in rural India. And yeah, it won't. They won't be streaming YouTube videos, but some you know, access to the network will be universal very quickly. We then need to build on that. You know, we need to we need to deal with countries that have wholly inadequate infrastructure to support them through the twenty first century, like Britain, for example. Um, and you know, and you know, improve things. But no, just being online will be for everyone. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah.